Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, This is the second episode we're recording and releasing this week after we did last week's uh, somewhat belatedly on Monday. Uh, In that episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, we did a deep dive on Apple's earnings from last week. Today, we're going to talk about three topics, as usual, in our News Roundup episode. Uh, First off, we'll talk about Snap's earnings. So we'll talk about Snapchat and some of the new numbers that came out from them this week. Um, Something of a disaster, frankly, as a quarter. So we'll kind of talk about that in some detail. Secondly, we'll talk about Twitter and a couple of changes they made to the service this week and some other sort of controversy uh, around Twitter that's floating around at the moment. And then thirdly, both of us have been using the iPhone 10 for at least a few days at this point. And uh, we thought we'd share some of our thoughts having having been using that for a, for a, a little while now. Um, not quite a review, but certainly share some thoughts on our early experiences with that device. So we'll kick things off with Snap's earnings. And in case you didn't follow those, I'll just do a brief summary. Uh, this was Snap's third set of earnings as a public company. They went public uh, in the middle of the first quarter. And so they reported first, second, and now third quarter results as a public company. They've been very non-communicative on the first two sets of earnings calls and have been criticized for that, frankly. Um, but at the same time, the ongoing theme throughout those three earnings calls has been somewhat reminiscent of Twitter's recent performance and that user growth, which is really critical to revenue growth and ultimately profitability, has been sluggish. And uh, this third quarter set of results was even worse than the second quarter in that respect. And it really does feel like uh, Snap is continuing to struggle to uh, build an audience uh, that goes beyond its current sort of heavy dominance of teenagers and young adults, but but pretty minimal penetration of other demographics. On top of that, they also reported that prices for ads were way down because they introduced automatic um, ad buying, sort of programmatic buying, a while back, and essentially they no longer have a price floor on uh, or a standard price rate card for advertising. So businesses are basically bidding what they feel like it's worth. And in many cases, those bids are uncontested. And so they get very cheap ads, which is great for those businesses, helps to build up uh, the number of ads appearing on the site and so on, but at much lower prices. So uh, lack of user growth and those price erosion are really not helping things from a revenue growth perspective. And they really got kind of hammered uh, on the stock market afterwards. And then Uh, On the earnings call, the company sort of proposed various solutions and uh, changes they're going to make. And ultimately, I think the way to read that is almost every change that's been proposed for Snap for a long time now, which it's always resisted, they're now suddenly embracing. So huge reversals on things like courting celebrities and creators, which they've always kind of ignored. Uh, Changes in terms of the design, which has always been criticized for being non-user friendly, but which they've defended as being distinctive. Uh, and so on and so forth. So lots of that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the roundup of what was announced. Aaron, kind of what was your take on all of this? Well, I think, uh, so I've been reading a great book lately called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It was written by Ben Horowitz, who's one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, the big VC firm out in the Bay Area. Um, Ben was also a founder and CEO of a company called LoudCloud, which somehow miraculously survived the dot-com bubble bursting in the early 2000s. Anyway, it's a really great management book, really to the point and better than a lot of the other management books I think that are out there that tend to be that tend to have a lot of filler. But um, he presents an idea in there called management debt, and it's a, just a tiny little section where he, he talks about how how there are a lot of sh- decisions that managers make that have a short term benefit but come with a bill that you've got to pay later. 
and he gives like HR related kind of examples of it um, and, and marketing related examples. I feel like like Snap right now is facing the bills, like the bills have come due for all kinds of management debt. Mm. I think the design is an example of that. If you look at the way that they designed it, it made a ton of sense for reaching out to millennials um, and sort of getting a lot of early market penetration. And now they're paying the price as they're trying to broaden beyond millennials and a lot of people just don't get the app. Um, I think the same is true for the policies that they've had toward content creators, um, the way that the whole app is built in terms of the way it presents content and how it's not very amenable to ad load the way just a traditional feed is, like on a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed. Um, yeah, I, all these bills are coming due. For early decisions that made it stand out, that helped them grow aggressively, especially because they could get a lot of venture funding to help them do it. Now that they're publicly traded, the rules are all different and the stakes are higher and the expectations for for growth require, you know, a much broader appeal than what they currently have. And, uh, you know, Evan Spiegel is not the kind, I mean, I think spect, I think the spectacles mess right now and they've got like 20 million of these sitting around or whatever it is. <laughs> um, it's not really twenty. What was it like? Or no, is it twenty? How many? I don't remember it's the number. Many, it's not in the news. Basically, no. It was a lot. It was millions. Twice as many <laughs> that they're writing down as they sold right. in the first nine months. Yeah, yeah. It's a small number. It's one hundred fifty thousand that they sold in the first nine months. So it's it's probably oh, okay. around three to five hundred thousand, depending on how they're right, right. for the value of this. So it was the mil- It was so millions was the was the write down was what it was. It's somewhere yes, in the millions. Million the write down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the point is. You know, Evan Spiegel is a creative guy and he likes doing things differently. It is a lot harder to do that with a publicly traded firm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When you're sort of insulated and and you're in, as a private company and and you know your investors are investing in you in part because you're a little bit crazy or you know putting in a nice right. way you're yeah. cre- creative. Um, that's not how it works when you're publicly traded. Yeah. And I wonder if Snap just worked a little, they, they moved a little too fast in, in going public. I wonder if maybe they would have been better served by by letting things cook a little longer and getting the fundamentals right. Because when it comes down to it, that's that's obviously the problem now. This isn't a matter of like a, a bumpy, you know, downward trend that they're going to sort of come out of. This isn't trending issues. This is fundamentals like that are wrong about the yeah. business for it to grow in the ways it needs to. And, and, and this is scary now, cause when you're publicly traded, it's, you know, you, you do, you go through your bumpy experiences in full view of everybody right. because you have to report. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, public literally means public, right? I mean, it, it, all your failures are public now, all your short term struggles are public on a quarterly basis. That's all very much out there in the public eye. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think there are some fundamental challenges. The big question in my mind is just whether any of them can actually be fixed, and and specifically Me whether too. any of the proposed fixes are the ones that will actually make a difference. And so, the redesigns an interesting idea, um, and Business Insider got some sort of inside scoop on what that might actually look like. But um, you know, frankly, I'm not sure that makes a huge difference. Yes, it's a little unuser friendly, but you have to also give people the reason to go there in the first place, even. You know, okay, they make it there, and maybe some people are put off by the design that's a little unintuitive. But you have to give people a reason to go there in the first place. And I think the reason many teenagers go there is because it's where all their friends are. Well, it's not going to be the case for people in other demographics. And so, 
Why would they go there when their friends likely are on Facebook or Instagram? Well, there's not much content that's really unique and at the same time would be appealing to older demographics. It's very much content that's designed for that younger demographic. And so the big worry is whatever changes they make, make it less appealing for the core uh, demographic that they already have and have dominated. And so there's a really tricky balancing act there between making it more appealing for new demographics without breaking the experience fundamentally for others. And then you've got the Facebook parent problem, right? So um, you know, for a long time, Facebook was a place where young people hung out, then all their parents started showing up and it made it less appealing not to be there because I think most of the young people that started out there have stayed there, but to share really intimate things there. And that's always been one of the core value propositions of Snapchat is you shared intimate raw stuff because A, it was only being shared with a few close friends and B, it disappeared pretty soon. But if your parents are on there all of a sudden, your incentives are a little bit different. And so they've got that to worry about as well, I think. I agree. And and on top of that, whatever redesign is coming down the pipe is um, probably going to be just as easily to copy as stories were. And Instagram is eating uh, Snap's lunch when it comes to stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's hard to imagine what redesign they're going to come up with where Facebook and Instagram can't approximate them, at least, if not outright copy them and just drive more users their way. I mean, we interviewed Alison Faulkner uh, about a year ago now um, as for one of the Question of the Week episodes. And she is now completely committed herself to Instagram and has left Snapchat. I don't want to say behind entirely. She still has a presence there, but it's not the way she communicates with, with her people anymore. And she's now at over 100,000 followers on Instagram. Right. And, uh, and it's because of the platform serves her so much better. And yeah. it's such a better way for her to engage with brands. Brands mm-hmm. prefer it. Her engaging through through uh, through Instagram than right. through Snapchat. I mean, this is there are real problems here. And even if a redesign draws in new users, it might be temporary at best because you know Facebook through you know its various properties can approximate or copy the features outright. Right. So it's a scary thing to be in right now and and I'm not going to I'm not going to write Snapchat off by any means. I, no. They have a lot of very creative people there but but uh they've got a big uphill battle to to fight. Yeah, so. for sure. And and Allison's a great example of the the creator influencer type community that Snapchat has very deliberately ignored. They've been asked about it a lot. Right. They've kind of said we don't feel like we need to court them. They're there already. You know, and then Instagram came along and really did actively court them, and they've all switched over. There's a bigger audience there. It feels like a safer uh, environment, especially for brands. Uh, as you say, brands prefer influencers to engage there because it's all more visible and, and feels friendly and safer and so on. And so, you know, they've really kind of missed a step there. And, and again, that feels like something that's going to be very difficult just to fix now after the fact, after they've long sent that message of, we don't really care if you're here or not. That's right. Hmm. Um, Okay, well, let's move on to our second story, which is Twitter. Um, No earnings from Twitter this week, but uh, several other things. Uh, Big one being the uh, move to extend the 280 character limit, so the doubling of the traditional 140 limit to everybody after an initial test for several weeks with a few uh, influencers, I guess we might say, certainly people with bigger followings and uh, Twitter employees and a few random other people, it seemed. Uh, so they've now extended that to everybody. Much smaller change. They they changed the uh, limit on usernames uh, so that those can now be uh, 50 characters long. Uh, and this is the descriptive username rather than the actual sort of handle, as it were. 
Uh, and there was also a sort of kerfuffle around verification. And verification's always been a tricky thing on Twitter. They've described it as a sort of a mixed bag, and I think that's really kind of what's got them in trouble here. Uh, verification at first was kind of for famous people, so people where you really cared whether they were really who they said they were. And that's kind of how it started out. And that, by definition, meant it was limited for a long time to people, to use Twitter's terminology, of note, people who were kind of of, or accounts of public interest. Um, And then a while back, they kind of opened verification to pretty much anybody else who could meet certain criteria. There was still sort of a public interest uh, uh, criterion in there, but it, it was the bar was a lot lower, should we say. So people like me got verified at that point. Uh, but the the big challenge with verification is it's a blue check mark. It feels like an endorsement. And so one of the big criticisms of Twitter for quite some time now has been that really quite undesirable people end up with these check marks uh, because they are who they say they are, not because Twitter's actually endorsing them in any way. But the impression is still there that they're being endorsed by by the platform. And this week there was a prominent sort of white supremacist who was verified after a long time and after Twitter, frankly, had kicked off a lot of other white supremacists. So it's sort of seemed to send a mixed message. And there was some uh, criticism from fairly prominent people on Twitter kind of saying, hey, what the heck is this about? And Twitter kind of came out and said, we've known for some time this process wasn't working quite right and was sending mixed messages. And we're now finally going to start taking that seriously, but we don't have anything to share yet. So it's kind of an interesting mixed bag of, of sort of Twitter deliberately making news with some big changes to the product, which we've talked about a little bit before, and also making news for all the wrong reasons, which seems to be a consistent theme over the last few weeks. But Aaron, I don't know what you thought about all this. Yeah, so uh, just kind of taking it in turns, starting with the two hundred or the yeah the two hundred eighty character limit. Um, you know, it. Uh, I don't know. I see this going two ways, and I'm having a hard time predicting which it's going to be. The thing about Twitter is that there's a really strong user culture across all kinds of domains. Um, there's just sort of general practices that are deeply ingrained in, in Twitter that aren't that Twitter is at times embraced and reinforced, maybe, but that the users actually drove. I mean, hashtags were a user innovation, not a Twitter innovation. And then hashtags became, you know, a thing because users recognized it as a way to sort of flag and be able to find useful or relevant content, I should say, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so this is really about a culture thing. And uh, so a couple thoughts about that. One is it's fascinating to see how vehement the anger has been over what's a really, really small change. I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things. You know, this is not that much extra text. And yet there are a lot of people who are frustrated by it. And I think it shows you how finely tuned these social media experiences need to be. <laughs> I mean, really finely tuned, like yeah. like down to the character count available and the way the information is presented. And uh, But the thing is, because it's a culture thing, I think it's really hard to predict reliably where this is going to swing. I mean, there could be a strong culture built up saying you don't do more than 140 characters, even though you're allowed to, unless you need to. Like this is sort of like user, the culturally enforced brevity. Or alternatively, everybody will just get accustomed to the 280 and nobody Mm. will care. The point in either case is that this change hasn't helped Twitter. Right. There's nothing. I mean, like, like there's a huge cultural shift. And right now Twitter is paying a backlash cost for it. Uh, there's a huge cultural shift that will need to change for this to be useful. There is nobody out there who's going to say, boy, I didn't like using Twitter before, but now that I have double the characters, like I'm going to start using it. Mm. Uh, it's really unclear to me what problem they've solved um, with this change. 
Um, I, I just don't get that. And maybe there's some internal metric that they're trying to point to. Maybe they, maybe they think it has something to do with switching monthly active users into more daily active users. Like maybe there's something internal there that they think this that might have an effect. I am at a complete loss as to what it might be. All it is now is they've they're enforcing a cultural shift without a clear value being offered to the users. Right. And, and I don't get that. I don't know why you would impose that. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, they clearly do have metrics behind it. And they, when they first announced the trial, and then this week they put out several blog posts kind of explaining the reasoning behind it and so on. And so there is some detail there. But ultimately, it seems to be about engagement levels. And they've noticed that in markets like Japan, where the existing character limit actually allowed for much more expression because of the efficiency of the character set, uh, they see a lot higher engagement. And, and I've always argued there's lots of other cultural reasons why it might have taken off in Japan rather than anything else. It's not like everything else is equal except for the character limit in those two markets. But um, they, they say they see higher engagement. They say they regularly see people start tweets but then abandon them seemingly when they go over the character limit and so on. So they do have some real evidence. But yeah, the downside could be significant. I think to my mind the biggest downside is that 140 characters, which you know that's the limit and it usually ends up being 100 or less, that's inherently glanceable. You can scan a timeline right. that's full of you know single single sentence tweets essentially, or at least you know two or three line tweets. You can you can scan them. You can instantly get the gist of every tweet in a timeline. You just scroll through very very quickly, and just stop when you really want to dig deeper into something. Or when there's an image or an embedded tweet that then requires a little more reading. Uh, but when everything starts to be three four paragraphs long. Um, or rather three, four sentences long and a whole paragraph long, it's, it's not glanceable anymore. And you have to actually dig into uh, the, the structure of each tweet to get the gist of it. And it, it really breaks up your scanning and, and reading experience. And you know, as somebody who is on Twitter all day and reads a lot of tweets from the people that I follow, the scannability is a critical sort of element of the user experience. And so for that to be broken is really quite frustrating. And uh, the big question is just kind of where will things settle in? And Twitter's kind of said, hey, what we found is from the early test, very few tweets actually go beyond a certain amount anyway. Um, and therefore, you know, it doesn't really change the experience dramatically. And maybe that will turn out to be true and maybe it'll all be fine. But I'm just looking at a screen of tweets right now and I'd say at least half of them have seem to be making full use of the extra characters. And maybe that will settle in after a while. But, you know, I do worry that it's going to break the fundamental experience of reading a timeline. And more importantly, there seem to be bigger issues with the product that Twitter still needs to fix that feel more urgent and like they would have, to your point, more impact. Yeah. And I will also say a, a, a beta test of a couple of weeks, a pilot of this of a couple of weeks with a, a limited set of users seems to me like a crazy sample for making that decision going forward. I mean, I, you have to take risk. And mm -hmm. so it just was risky right. for the, like for all the reasons you articulated. Yeah. I, the the fifty character username thing is gonna I think be annoying to more people than not. The um, you know and then the blue check mark thing it's because they chose a check mark. Right. <laughs> I mean that like that that's sort of like saying this is okay. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. there's a that's the cultural significance of a check mark generally, and and you know maybe I'm just now hitting on this thought. It seems like a lot of Twitter's troubles have to do with with cultural missteps like they mm -hmm. just constantly are getting culture wrong yeah. i mean they like the harassment issues are a great example of this there, there's just something weird that they don't seem to get the culture of their own users um it, and that's a weird problem to me like that's right. a weird failure to me because 
it, there's no culture that they should understand better, and there's a culture that they should be cultivating and and growing and serving, and and it seems like they're just constantly at odds with the culture of their users, and I don't get that. Yeah. And maybe it all comes down to financial pressure, and internally they are having conversations, but they seem pretty detached from what's yeah. actually what actually matters to their users, and that's strange to me. Yeah, I so. do wonder if it's less not getting it than being afraid of trying to fix it. Because, um, you know, I mean, even the tweets about verification this week, they talked about kind of, we've been aware of this since earlier this year, or kind of remember exact wording was, but it was like, well, why haven't you fixed it then? And it, that feels like exactly. you know, they're aware of the abuse and harassment, and yet they haven't fixed it. They're aware of this verification issue, and they haven't fixed it. And so in many cases, they do seem aware, they do seem to get it, but they just seem very scared of actually intervening, which makes the 280 character thing all the more ironic, because... It's one of the most iconic aspects of Twitter is that it's 140 characters and that's the thing they change. So they're not afraid to change that and yet they are afraid to change big problems with, as you say, the culture and the sort of environment uh, on uh, Twitter. And and, uh, and it, that, that seems stranger to me in some ways that they just seem so afraid of trying to intervene to change some of this stuff that desperately clearly does need to change in order to improve the experience of everyday users. I, I really think this actually goes a lot, it goes back to, and this is going to sound like a, an unrelated connection, but I really think so much of this um, of the of culture of Twitter's struggles and dysfunctions and all of this stuff we've been talking about goes back to the way that they were financed, and we we talked about this a long time ago, mm. and uh, and Twitter during its private funding rounds raised an order of magnitude more money than Instagram did. And that's just as a benchmark. And then Instagram got acquired. Twitter went public. Now that Twitter is public, they face all the same problems and pressures that, um, and they've been through years of them now, mm-hmm. that we, like the same kind of stuff we were just talking about with Snap. And uh, the, and it, it, Twitter is just, I think they're constantly like scared and, 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 and responding in ways that are driven by the sort of this financial bottom line that they, don't seem to be thinking about product as the first most important thing, right? You make something that brings delight to your users and the money follows and there are ways that you can make the money follow. Um, Twitter sort of went, I think, prematurely into the IPO in the same way I think Snap did because Mm -hmm. they hadn't sort of figured out the revenue part yet and they should have done that in private rather than public. Um, But now because they sort of went public with all these problems, they're, n- they're now constantly, I think, worried about financial issues and user engagement and all these sorts of things, and not just fundamentally on the idea that this is a product that very first, before anything else, has to be delightful. Right. Right. It has to bring delight. And I think they, I, there's, they, there's no sense of delight that comes out of any of these sorts of changes or, or even the way Twitter communicates anymore. I mean, they're yeah. constantly responding to ways that... that uh, you know, to borrow an economic term, that their product is causing disutility rather right. than utility. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a that's a broken business mm-hmm. if you're constantly apologizing for the disutility that you're causing. Right. So. Right. And I guess they're banking on the fact that utility is still greater. Um, that there are yeah. more people getting a lot more value out of it than people who are disappointed and frustrated with it. But at some point, you wonder about, you know, how far does that balance have to shift? How many people have already been put off and you know, either abandon Twitter and, or don't come back again, um, you know, yeah. from, from all of that. And that's really hard to measure, but I'm guessing it's, it's a large number. 
And in Twitter's defense, you know, Facebook gets occasional backlashes in this regard too. And I have yeah. friends who dump Facebook on occasion. Right. It's a risk that all these social networks face because yeah. of the ugliness of bringing humanity together. It's not all ugly, but there's a lot of right. ugl- ugliness no. there, sadly. Absolutely. See, see internet comments. Yeah. Um, right. No, I mean, it's we, and we could probably carry on this conversation quite a bit longer talking about the whole issue of this kind of current backlash against tech companies and uh, whether it's real and whether it's actually mainstream or whether it's just a bunch of reporters and other people talking about this stuff and it's not really permeating regular people. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now, but I think that's probably a conversation we should have at some point in the future. All right, well, let's t- uh, spend the last few minutes just talking about the iPhone 10. We've kind of talked about it prospectively in earlier episodes, kind of talked about the launch announcement, for example, uh, back in September, talked about sales and uh, things like that with various bits of reporting that were going on. But we haven't talked about the device itself, um, reviews for the device, and we haven't talked about our own experiences with it. And since I've had one since last Friday, Aaron's had his since Tuesday, um, I th- we thought it would be worth kind of talking about sharing our own experiences sort of hands-on with the device. And Aaron, why don't you go first? Why don't you share some of your sort of thoughts and impressions? Sure. Um, my favorite thing, first of all, is the screen. You know, I, it, the screen has always kind of been highlighted in, in the reviews I've read, but not, not front and center featured. And I think that's because Face ID is the, is the marquee feature, and that's why it gets all the attention. Right. And then obviously there are always camera comparisons because that's really what we're carrying around now, a bunch of smart cameras, not mm-hmm. just smart not smartphones. But for me, the screen is the standout thing. Now, I, I'm on a two-year upgrade cycle with iPhones, and so I went from a 6S to the 10, and uh, that's a pretty big step. But I'm amazed by the difference an OLED and an OLED screen makes. It really is it is it is much much better and just makes it more enjoyable to use. I feel like mm-hmm. pictures look better. I think um, you know I love that there's an HDR aspect both to the photo taking, but also it shows up on the phone, which I think right. is great. I think, for example, back when iPhones first started shooting 4K, I kind of shrugged at it because I thought, well, this doesn't exactly make a huge difference in my day-to-day experience with Mm -hmm. video. Um, That's not true with the screen, where when you take a photo that has an HDR profile to it, and then you see the benefits of HDR immediately on the screen in front of you, that's pretty, pretty compelling, really, really great. So, yeah, so I'll just start with that. I love the screen. And, you know, the notch thing, it... It's going to be iconic a year from now. It's mm. it's going to have shifted from the thing everybody complains about mm-hmm. to the thing that makes an iPhone identifiable and even a little bit endearing. So, yeah, no, I, I my my feelings have been very similar. I mean, I think the the screen is fantastic, and I, the notch has been a kind of non-issue to me. I, when you're using the phone in vertical mode, it kind of fades away because it just sits between the various indicators as if it's not there a lot of the time. Uh, in video, you either notice it if you have the video stretched to the full sort of uh, width of the screen, or you know you can go to the middle, um, the, the sort of option where you get the letterboxing on the sides because it's wider than a standard widescreen video, and then you don't notice it at all. So, you know, really, I found the notch isn't an issue at all. Uh, I think Face ID is worth talking about. I mean, as you said, that's been the the feature that people have talked about the most. I found that to be phenomenal right out of the box. To be honest, I, I've had it very, very few times. I think maybe one or two where. I've held it up to my face and it hasn't unlocked if there wasn't something somehow blocking a view of my face. And 
we were talking about this before we started recording, but I'll occasionally go for bike rides and I'll put a helmet on and I have sunglasses that go with it as well to protect my eyes a bit. When I have even just the helmet on, it seems to struggle for some reason. I haven't quite figured out why. And Aaron was speculating before we started recording that maybe it's the chin strap that sort of distorts the shape of my face a little bit maybe. But um, that's really the one occasion where I've had issues with recognition. But every other scenario, different angles, different lighting conditions, um, you know, all kinds of other stuff. Wearing other sunglasses without a helmet, you know, it still recognized me in all of those scenarios. So, you know, it does seem to be very, very good. And it's very quick. If you use it the way other people have talked about using it, which is that you don't unlock your phone, wait, and then uh, slide to unlock. You just kind of uh, hold it up. It wakes. Normally, you swipe up from the bottom of the screen almost every time. By the time you go through that process, uh, it's recognized you, and, and it just opens straight onto the home screen. So. Uh, I found that very good. In general, I found the gestural interface very natural. Um, takes very little training to kind of get used to it, and then it feels really fluid. It feels like you do everything with your thumb now, whereas before there was a whole range of different gestures you needed to use to do stuff. Uh, it feels like everything is now just about swiping your thumb around on the screen, which feels, as I say, very fluid. It works very well uh, for all kinds of things. The one frustration I have is control center, which is the top right of the phone, which means you have to really shift the way you're gripping the phone, or you have to try to use the reachability gesture, which does work, but it feels a little awkward. And uh, and even then, sort of the music controls are still top right where they are in iOS 11, regardless of what phone you're using. That that still feels kind of annoying to me. But you know, in in general, I've I've been really happy with it. I think uh, the other thing worth mentioning is the size. Just the trade-off between the screen and the device size is, I think, perfect for a smartphone in my view. Yeah, I, I echo all that. This is where we have too much in common in our op opinions about all this, but I think it just reflects the device. I, I, I agree. I think my biggest frustration with it is the screen size, not because I don't like having a big screen to look at. I love that part, um, but the reachability of everything is a pain. And mm. it's, not just, it's not just an Apple-designed app. It's all app developers. They keep putting stuff at the top that I need right. to get to. And right. I'm having to shift my, my grip on it in a way that often makes me uncomfortable because mm. I don't have my – what it is is I don't have my palm partly under the device. Right. Instead, I have to be gripping it entirely from the side. Right. And so my worry is that – so that's how my thumb gets to the top. And my worry is that it will just drop out of my hand because mm. I don't have my palm underneath it. So that's the thing I just have to get used to. Um, and I don't, I turned on reachability and I don't love the way it works in part because I have the same complaint about control center. And what bugs me about it is when you do the reachability gesture, the, um, the indicators at the top don't come down with it. And mm. so it's not totally clear what your target is supposed to be to right. invoke re uh, control center because right. the target is, yeah. you know, the little Wi-Fi symbol, the battery symbol, mm. you know, your signal strength. And then, but when you do reachability and pull it down, the target doesn't come down with it. So I'm always just kind of like, well, maybe that spot will bring it up. And it's weird to it's weird to have yeah. a target that's not visually there. Um, but uh, yeah, and and I'm like you, Face ID pretty much always works for me, and I'm constantly amazed by situations where it works, or even just the tiniest glance, the direction mm -hmm. of the phone will unlock it. I have had no false unlocks at any point. You know, my kids have begged right. to use it. And and related to my kids, I have to say that they, they love Animojis. Mm. And I tweeted about this this week. I am shocked that Animojis didn't make it into their Clips app. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of high usage for the Clips app, but I guarantee if they put Animojis in there and taken off the 10 limit recording 
uh, the 10 second recording limit. Mm -hmm. And so you could record a two minute long Animoji thing if you wanted. It would have been, you know, it would have gotten these everywhere as it is. Right now people are sticking these videos, like these Animoji karaoke videos up on Twitter and all over the place. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and they're having to do that within the really annoying constraint of, you know, the recording limits inside of iMessage. So, yeah. Yeah, no, this yeah. feels like there's a lot of way for that to, to go still. Um, one other thing I found useful, I don't take a lot of selfies, to be honest. It's really not something I spend a lot of time doing. Um, but being able to have the portrait mode on the front-facing camera, I find I'm often trying to take pictures of my son, who's two, and um, it, you can kind of do it from the front, but he always wants to see what you're doing, you know, and he right. wants to come around the other side of the phone. So being able to hold the phone up in front of his face and take the picture is actually a lot more user-friendly for him. So I've found... That's really nice to be able to take portrait mode fi- pictures from the front as well. Um, that's something that's uh, uh, that's also unique to the iPhone X. Um, but yeah, in general, I've been super happy with it. It feels like um, you know a big change from even the 8 Plus, which I was using from the time that came out until I switched to this phone. And so, um, you know, really, really impressed with it. And, and the big question in my mind is just kind of how many of these can Apple make because they're going to continue to be extremely popular. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm just fascinated to think of what the roadmap might be for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. This feels refreshed in so many dramatic ways. Yeah. It's kind of fun to imagine what the future generations of the iPhone are going to look like and and uh, what they'll do next. Johnny Ive did an interview this week with, uh, was it Wallpaper Magazine? Yeah. And kind of commented on how now that the home button is gone, they have even more freedom and software to right. do interesting things with the interface. And I'm, I'm really curious what is going to show up because uh, he sounded a lot more optimistic than even I would have been. And I like all these changes. So yeah, yeah. No, really and, I cool. think, and that's that's one thing that's worth noting. It feels for the most part, other than the gesture interface, it feels very much like it's still the same version of iOS 11 that runs everywhere else. And if you look at what's happened with the iPad and the iPad Pro in particular with iOS 11, and even the last several years of iterations, you know, that feels like it's a fork. And this doesn't feel forked, other than the gesture sort of swiping and stuff to replace the home button. The layout of stuff and the keyboard and so on is still very much the same way as it is on other devices. And it does feel like there's definitely more room for innovation there, for, for making it more optimized for a device that doesn't have a home button that has that longer screen and everything else associated with that. So I, I can easily see more coming next year. Um, one of the interesting bits of speculation has been about what other sizes might Apple make. I mean, my, my default assumption was you don't need two sizes anymore. You've got this one sort of perfect mix of screen size and device size, but there are still people that want a smaller device. And so there is a question of, you know, do we get an SE-type sized uh, iPhone 10? Do we get a Plus version of this that's even larger that sort of maybe has the same footprint as the Plus models used to uh, or still do actually, and uh, and yet has an even larger screen. So there's all kinds of interesting questions about that too. Um, and but it does feel like the iPhone X form factor, at least in the shape and the overall layout and so on, is going to be the, the form factor going forward. And it's just a question of how many variants and how quickly and so on. I agree. And in fact, I think this points back to what we talked about last week, how this feels like Apple is on the cusp of a, of a super cycle, unlike any previous super cycle that they've had. Because the changes, the innovations that went into the iPhone X are things that are going to spill out into all kinds of other product lines um, yeah. and also just spill out into the other models that they are already shipping with the iPhone. Right. And this is all going to come as time goes on. And so when the SE, if an SE size of this comes out, it's going to 
push a whole bunch of new users to it. And then when the plus size version of this comes out, if they do one, it will push a whole bunch of new users. And there's going to be a lot. And then when all the changes come to the iPad, you know, they're going to be um, there's they're going to be a whole bunch of new iPad purchases. And so, right. I, yeah, I think this is I think Apple's at the front end of a of a super cycle like they haven't even had before. And they're yeah. already valued at $900 <laughs> billion. Dollars, so yeah. it's just, it's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good stuff. All right, well, we'll wrap up the episode there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As usual, we'll have a couple of links and things in the show notes in case you're interested in uh, following up on any of the stuff that we mentioned during the course of the episode. But hope you enjoyed that episode. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Bye-bye.